Do you ever get like impatient with the process of getting better? Like, I, like I, I need, I need to get past this now. Is that a bad thing? Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversations for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Here's our host, Menachem Poznanski. Consciously family, welcome back. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go, as they say. Uh, it's great to be back in the seat. A little uh, late this week, but uh, we got here. Never too late to be on time. Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about uh, what we can learn from the outside about doing the inside job. That's what I want to talk about today. But before we get there, I want to thank you for joining us. I invite you to subscribe to our podcast and give us five stars and review that lets the algorithm masters know that we matter, uh, but also uh, do us a favor and share us with your friends, let people know about what we're trying to do over here, talk about spiritual things, uh, just try to grow one day at a time. Uh, also, uh, check out the other amazing things that we're doing on The Light Revealed, lightrevealed.org. Um, you can find this podcast with all of our episodes categorized and menued by theme and uh, and uh, and series. And, and also we have uh, some other amazing stuff, Rip Joey's stuff, my podcast with Rip Mayer, uh, great weekly series that uh, Rip Ben is doing, um, Morty and, and Shmaya's podcast, so really awesome stuff going on with Light Revealed. Um, and uh, also if you want to reach us, you can reach us on Instagram at Menachem Puzz or at The Light Revealed on Instagram, Facebook, or any of those lovely places. And also you can email us uh, at... The Light Revealed, you can email us, email us to the Light Revealed at tlrfamily.org. Let's get the at, and then I say at again. Anyway, you get the point. Okay, so there's, this is what I want to talk about today. There's, there's a term. My friend Rob Joey's kind of talked about this term, like a lot lately. Um, and it's a term, the term is takeif umiyad, which is kind of like, a funny way of talking because it means like right now suddenly it doesn't like it doesn't even translate well into English and the term is one that's used by explicitly by Lubavitcher Rebbe when he's discussing um, the way in which we are meant to be mitzapel Yeshua the way in which we're meant to expect or anticipate the Geula um, or if you wanted to like frame it outward less related or less specifically related to like national redemption, but the way in which we're meant to look at our own personal elevation, redemption, spiritual enlightenment, spiritual illumination, spiritual experience, that we're meant to be anticipating it take umiyad, suddenly, right now. So what I wanted to explore was what that means, how that relates to our lives. First of all, in our orientation of thinking about the ultimate gula, uh, the gula of the whole world, but also in our gula prati, our individual gula as it relates our our personal lives and how what that teaches us about how we're meant to look forward to spiritual elevation spiritual illumination and, and really um, recovery recovering from whatever it is that we're uh, we're talking about so what does take if umiyad mean that's really the question so there's a common frame in the recovery world 
that talks about recovering, you know, not only from an addiction, but really from almost any problem, being really an inside job. You know, meaning in the sense that oftentimes when people encounter themselves, encounter or find themselves in a really challenging circumstance, the tendency is to think that, well, if these external uh, aspects of my life were resolved, my relationship was it was supposed to be, if this person that I'm with was behaving that they were supposed to, if my account, bank account looked the way it was supposed to, if my job looked the way it was supposed to, if my boss treated me the way it was, if my car was operating the way I needed it to be, etc., etc., etc. If all the externalities of my life were the way they're supposed to be, then that would really solve my problem. But all more often than not, and also in a manner where we not we don't we aren't subject to the whims of the challenges that come with life, being human and alive. And the fact that we deal with difficult people and we deal with difficult circumstances and we oftentimes find ourselves in, in, in somewhat external, unideal situations, change is really an inside job. It's really about a shift in consciousness. It's about a shift in orientation, a shift in attitude, and a different approach to how we've been looking at things and really just bringing a different energy to what's going on. And one of the really interesting things that emerges from some of the teachings of Hasidus is the way in which we can learn about spiritual growth from our physical body. And in fact, what I want to talk about today is the way in which we can learn about personal transcendence, ge'ula, overcoming when we find ourselves in a state of hopelessness um, from, from the body, from the way that the body functions, from our guf. You know, in the sense that the body now becomes something with which to look at. Which is not really a new frame, right? Because as we know, uh, the Pasuk teaches us, and the Baal was kind of very much put of emphasis on this, Mibisari echazeh eloka, right? That from my flesh, from my own body, from my own earthly experience, I can see, so to speak, God. I can perceive the divine. So this is a that to the extreme. The other thing that I think this teaching really unpacks and really kind of invite us to think about is the way in which we can learn about spirituality from addiction, dependency, and unwanted habit, which is a topic that I've been talking about a lot. And, you know, I just wrote a book about that, the acceptance book that I just recently put out is really specifically about unwanted habit, overcoming unwanted habits. But, but what we can learn from a person who's in a state of um, addiction, dependency, and unwanted habit, how that can inform us on spirituality, which seems like the opposite. Okay, so in order for us to start, let's begin by unpacking what those three terms mean, addiction, dependency, and unwanted habits. Now, one of the things that's important, we've talked about this a few times, so it's somewhat repetitive. If you're listening for the first time, you can go back to some of the last few episodes in mentioning this, but really addiction, dependency, and, and habit really can occur within the same circumstance, meaning they're, they both describe three different levels of attachment to a particular behavior or a series of processes or, or uh, a chemical. Right, three different levels, meaning habit being the lowest level, dependency being the next level, and then addiction being the most overwhelming level. However, 
addiction, habit, dependency, and addiction, or addiction, dependency, and habit, are also three aspects of the way in which a person can have developed a, a maladaptive uh, attachment to a, a substance, a behavior, or a certain process, right? So addiction kind of describes um, a neurological slash physiological slash psychological attachment, right? Meaning where the person's sense of reality, their body becomes um, connected to the need to have a substance in their in their uh, in their system, or to engage in certain processes in order to feel okay, etc. Dependency is really kind of focused for the most part on emotions, right? Meaning dependency describes the way in which people become attached to a particular substance or a particular behavior because of the relief that they get on an emotional plane, right? When they're dealing with how they're feeling, so they rely upon a substance or behavior to kind of cope with those feelings. And habit is really the frame that's really ultimately behavioral, right? Like we've discussed in the past, you know, humans are habit-forming beings. Our brains are have evolved and God designed them um, in order to try to create as many ha uh, habitual behaviors or, or um, autopilot behaviors as possible, right? So we can move myriad of muscles and tendons in order to walk, which is remarkable, and we don't have to think about it, it just happens automatically, right? Because our brain has kind of figured out, so to speak, how to move all the muscles necessary so we can walk without tripping and falling over most of the time, right? So that's that's the way our brains are built, and our brains are constantly trying to develop, so to speak, good habit patterns that are adaptive and help us to do more and more, meaning the more we can do by habit, the more we can do, right? So if I can walk on the street and talk on my cell phone and have a conversation with somebody who's on the other line and also uh, eat something and also, you know, walk really fast, right? I could do a lot of different motions at the same time. I can get a lot done, you know? So, and the more I can get done, the more productive I can be, the more productive I can be, the more likely I am to bring the saber-toothed tiger back to the cave, uh, to the cave woman and to feed my family. So, right, the more, this is the way that our, our bodies are designed. So we have habit, which is really focused on behavior patterns where the brain has kind of developed uh, a certain pattern of operation that it begins to do automatically. We have dependency, which is mostly emotional, and then we have addiction, which is kind of neurological, physiological, and psychological. Okay, so, and some of those, it's important to say that some of our, many of our habits, I mean, first of all, not more, more often than not, probably most of our habits are actually really good for us. And it's a great thing that we develop habits. And our dependencies are oftentimes, or at least some of the times, very, very useful and healthy. And, you know, we want to build healthy dependencies or interdependencies on our spouses, on our parents, on our loved ones, our friends, our fellows etc., etc. We rely on one another. We become dependent upon them. We're not dependent on the way that's, obviously there's a, a way in which that can become maladaptive, that can become, you know, un, unproductive. But however, for the most part, we rely on other people. We live in a civilized society. We need to live in a civilized society because as humans, we thrive best when we rely on each other. So that those are forms of healthy dependency. And then in a certain way, there are certain forms of healthy, so to speak, addiction. Though addiction tends to really describe something that's ultimately pathological and negative, but there are 
like things that we're kind of addicted to. Like look, let's say look at, you know, even the healthiest person's reliance upon food. Our body is needy of nutrients, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, it's not exactly an addiction, but it kind of fits that frame. However, when we're discussing these kind of things, when we're talking about overcoming a place that we found ourselves in, we're more often than not talking about layers of addiction, dependency, and habit that we are unhappy about and that we want to overcome. So really what what happens is the reason why people become trapped or become encumbered by unwanted habit or maladaptive dependency or destructive addiction is because they become so stuck, and this is particularly true of the addiction piece, they become so stuck in the pattern of the attachment that all the space that exist that normatively exists between the, their self, their feelings, their impulses, which is really like their instincts, and their actions is removed, right? People become so um, wrapped by what they're doing, how they're behaving, but then in particular, when you get into the to the higher levels of, of dependency and addiction, right? They become so enamored, kind of struggled. Um, no, not enamored, not struggled. They become so stuck in a, in, a, in a cycle that there's not a lot of space in between those things, meaning they don't know who they are, right? You'll find a lot of times people in addiction start to identify as the thing that they're addicted to. I'm a pothead or I'm a drinker or, you know, it starts to become who they are. It's their identity. It's who they associate with. They only associate with other people. That's a, a component of this, right? Their self starts to be, to slip away. Their feelings and their impulses start to get very melded and kind of start to feel the same. And their actions become almost automatic, meaning who they are, how they're feeling, what they want to do or what they desire to do, and then doing it, right, becomes one like very quick continuum. There's no space. And part of what happens when a person falls into that pattern is that they start to get lost in a lot of um, a lack of choice and a lot of really bad behavior because they're kind of acting only from a place of instinct and a fulfillment of the instinct to fulfill the needs that are going on kind of underneath. Part of like what I'm, kind of what I'm referring to is that oftentimes when you talk to people who are in longer term recovery, right, they'll say like, oh, when I came into the rooms of whatever, AA or NA, whatever it is, the 12 step program that they're, they're joining, I didn't realize that I had anxiety. I just used, you know, but then as I got clean and I started to face what was my reality, I started to realize there's a lot of stuff going on. I have a lot of resentments and I have a lot of fear and I have a lot of sadness and I have a lot of uh, um, discomfort inside of me about things that I experienced, traumas that I experienced in my life. And really before when I was in my active addiction, I just got up and my only thought really was getting high. You know, and then I got high. And and part of what those people are kind of unpacking is that the nature of addiction is to remove the space between what you're feeling and what you're doing. Right? So the addict, it's not that the addict was not anxious. It's not that the addict wasn't in pain or in mourning over their losses and their traumas, but that they they didn't even feel those things because they just their self-identity was as a user and their mission was to get high. And they just got high. And it was almost like they experienced those things in a flash. 
just without even thinking about it. Now, it's interesting when we talk about that kind of that frame of understanding addiction, the in many ways, the entirety of recovery from addiction, particularly as it relates to like the 12 steps, is, but not exclusively, because really this is the nature of recovering from any kind of pattern of attachment that happens to a person, is to begin to infuse space, right? If the, if the nature of the problem is a lack of space, then the solution is to begin to infuse space and mindfulness between feelings and impulse and action. Sorry, between feelings, impulse, and action, right? Right. There, there, you have to try try to create some some area, some awareness between those things. Like some one one of the suggestions you'll hear in the rooms of recovery is like, well, uh, play out the tape. That's one of the things. Which an addict in active addiction will tell you that's a very hard thing for them to do. But as they stay sober one day at a time, they have the capacity to do this. Play out the tape. Play out the tape means think through what's going to happen if you go out and use what's going to happen after that. Well, you're going to use and then you're going to feel badly and then maybe you're going to want to use again or then you're going to have to go into the meeting and raise your hand and say you have one day back or maybe you lose the right to live in your house and your spouse will be very unhappy with you, right? So that's one of the suggestions that's given in recovery. Now, there's a pragmatic aspect to that suggestion, right, which is like if we think it through that maybe you'll make a good choice, but... I think one of the underlying benefits of that suggestion is a an effort on the part of addicts that are in recovery or people that have encountered addiction that are in recovery to begin to bring a mindfulness and awareness to their lives. And that doesn't that's just one example of it, but in many ways the entirety of the 12-step process is kind of wrapped up and 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 rooted in this idea. It's like thinking about, you know, do I accept? Do I acknowledge? Do I surrender to the idea that I have an illness, right? And then do I believe that there's hope? And then am I willing to do the steps it takes to get better, right? Which we've talked about the first three steps before, like the nature is like, of course I have a problem and now I have to solve it. But the steps say, no, let's take time. Let's really start to create some space in between you and how you're feeling and what your impulse is and how you act, right? And then it moves through and it says, well, let's begin to unpack your resentments and your fears and your shame. And the person says, well, I, you know, I can't do that because I'm ADD and I can't talk about it. And it's, oh, that's great. Let's sit down and write it down on paper. And when you see it in black and white, it'll be really helpful for you because you'll begin to like really start to unpack all of those things and then take the time to sit down with a fellow and go through that stuff. And now think about what a more elevated version of your life might look like. And now think about whether you're willing to live that way. And now Pray for the ability to live that way and now think about the shameful things you did and what actions you can take to try to set those things right. And now, as you get, we talked about a few weeks ago, as you get to what's called the living steps, you know, you start to practice self-evaluation on a day-to-day basis and moment-to-moment -moment within the day, which means it's just step 10, right? Evaluating, did I, do, did I do things right? Did I do things wrong? If I did things wrong, I try to admit that. Practicing prayer and meditation, right, which is, right, taking time to raise your eyes above or beyond the end of your nose, above the perspective that you're in and see the broader picture, right? Which is the function of the prayer and meditation there. And then the 12th step, which is to try to live by spiritual principles, by utilizing what was the most wrong with you, so to speak, 
uh, only a short time ago to help others, and also by living uh, purposefully, by practicing spiritual um, spiritual principles. And by, and by doing this, so, so that by doing this, the whole function of the 12 steps is to basically manifest intention and ideals in one's life, fueled by authentic feelings and instincts as the person starts to learn and to practice living by spiritual principles, right? So the problem of addiction is the removal of space between instinct, I'm sorry, between self, feeling, impulse, and action, and the solution to addiction, right, aside from some of the other frames of it, right, but just to look at it in this frame, it's higher power, etc., etc., all sorts of other stuff, amazing therapy, dealing with your traumas, all those things are necessary, but the antidote to that, to this component of addiction is to begin to infuse space and mindfulness and awareness and intention into the things that you're doing, into your actions, so that you're, you're acting rightly for the right reason in the right way, right? Checking your motives, which is a big part of, uh, it's a common uh, practice in the recovery world. Okay, fine. So that's, that's unpacking addiction. Now, what does it have to do with spiritual elevation, working on ourselves, anticipating the gaula? Okay, so let's put that aside for a second. There's a frame that we've talked about before on the podcast related to the, the way that the, the, the Balhatanya breaks down the human self. And the, and the Balhatanya breaks down the human self into really three different categories of spirit. There's a nefesh Bahamas, there's an animal spirit, there's a, there's, a, there's a part of a person that fundamentally operates in an animalistic formulation. I don't mean that in a pejorative or a negative sense, like, oh, you're such an animalistic person, but operates the same way an animal does, like a biological organism. There's a nefesh alokis, which is a divine soul, right, that's more elevated. And then there's like a nefesh hasichlis, which is the intellectual soul that kind of operates in between the nefesh of Bahamas, so to speak, and the nefesh alokis. But if we're just talking about the nefesh ha-Bahamas and the nefesh alokis, right, because the Nefesh HaSichlis is kind of the middle point between those two things, the, the Tanya explains an interesting paradigm that differentiates the nature of the operation between the Nefesh of, of the Nefesh Bahamas versus the Nefesh Lokis. Now, the Tanya explains that a person manifests themselves spiritually out into the world, meaning a person expresses their spirit out into the world in three ways, Machshava, Dibur, and Maisa thought, speech, and action. And those thoughts, speech, and action, meaning active thoughts, which is more like closer to like meditation or focused thinking, right? Uh, Dibor is like speech, like writing and talking, praying, etc., etc. And Misa is action. The Machshava, Dibor, and Misa of a person can either be driven by the spirit of the Nefesh of Bahamas or it can be driven by the spirit of the Nefesh of Lukis. And what differentiates action, thought, speech, and action, right, that emanates from the Nefesh of Bahamas versus thought, speech, and action, which emanates from the Nefesh of Kis, has to do with the interrelationship within those two between Midos and Moichin. One, one of the ideas that the Tanya puts forward, which is a basic idea in Jewish thought, particularly in Hasidus, is that there's basically two types of ways in which the self encounters uh, the world. One way in which the self encounters the world is through the intellect, 
right, which is framed by Chachma, Bina, and Das. The other way in which uh, we encounter the world is through the Midos, through the emotive traits of Chesed, Gvurti, Ferris, Netzach, Hod, Yisod, and Malchus. Okay, so, but those are broken down into kind of two parts, Moichin and Midos, right? Intellect and emotive, emotions. One of the things that the Alter Rebbe explains, basic, again, basic kind of theory or ideas or framework, is that that parallels within a human body between the heart or what we experience as emanating from the heart and that which we experience as emanating from the mind. What emanates from the mind is our thoughts, our perspective, our ideas. And what emanates from our heart is our feelings, our instincts, our gut about reality. Now, the separation between the Nefesh HaBahamis and the Nefesh HaLukis is that the Nefesh HaBahamis tends to feel first. The Nefesh HaBahamis operates first from its gut. Because it has a gut feeling about things and because it's a very highly evolved animal, it then thinks about it abstractly, right? So its feelings drive its thoughts. And then based on the, the thoughts that it has that are driven by its feelings, it decides how to act. It thinks about how to act. However, the actions of the Nefesh Bahamas are really driven by what, what they feel, right? The way in which it thinks is only about the Nefesh Bahamas does not think about whether its feelings are reasonable or think about whether its feelings are good, but rather, how can I fulfill the desire of my feelings? That's the nature of the Nefesh Bahamas. Feelings first, then thoughts, then action. The Nefesh kiss, on the other hand, is, is the opposite. The Nefesh kiss begins its process in the mind. It thinks about things. It contemplates things. It meditates on things. Because it's meditating on those things, because we, right, that part of us, meditates on things, that um, manifests into certain feelings, right? You think... Therefore, you feel. You think a certain way about life, about God, about the universe, about what you want to do, and that causes you to, to feel. And the feeling is then can be leveraged and harnessed to fuel right action. Right? So whereas the Nefesh Bahamas begins with feeling, which then leads to thoughts about the feelings, right? but thoughts how to manifest the feelings, which leads to action, the Nefesh kiss thinks, which leads to feelings, and then those feelings fuel right action, which is ultimately then directed by ideals and thoughts. So normally, when we talk about the nature of healthy operation, right, and this is probably both from a psychological frame and also from a frame of, of Judaism, the ideal circumstance is to be operating from the Nefesh kiss to be operating in the manner of the Nefesh kiss to be directed first by our thoughts, right, by our ideals and our attitudes. And because we think about something, we feel a certain way. And then because we think and feel about a certain way, we act a certain way, and ultimately our, our actions are driven by right attitudes and right thoughts. However, one of the things that we find in the Tanya, in chapter 23, is that there's a very, and this gets us back to the point that we're trying to make the whole time, is that there's a very powerful thing to learn from the way 
in which the body responds to what we want it to do. That the nature in which our body works is that our body, our limbs, does whatever we want them to do. All right? If I want my hand to move, I don't even think about my hand moving. It just moves. Right? I don't have to like tell my body to move the ligaments. I don't have to even tell my body to move my hand, much less to move all the muscles and ligaments that allow my hand to move. Right? My, I just want to move, and it moves. I don't have to even think that it should move. It just happens suddenly and right away. In fact, the Alter Rebbe uses this language of tekef umiyad in this circumstance when he's talking about the way in which the avarim, the limbs of the body, move exactly in the way that the, the person's mind wants them to. And in fact, what he's describing over there is the way in which when we act as extensions of God's will by doing right action, by doing mitzvos, we become, so to speak, like the, the chariots for the limbs of God. Right? The limbs of God in the, in the Kabbalistic language are the mitzvos. The mitzvos are the way in which God desires to manifest himself into the world, right? which is the right action of God's original intention of creating the world. And when we carry out right action, we become... Uh, channels, chariots, vehicle systems that allow the, the limbs of God, so to speak, to come into the world quite automatically, right? Meaning, how is it possible that uh, putting on tefillin or wearing tzitzit or giving tzedakah or doing a kind act manifests divine reality into the world? The answer is it just does. It just happens right away, suddenly, and take it from Muyat. Suddenly and right away. In the same way that the body moves in the manner in which it does. So that's what that's Parakhov Gimel. But what we learn from this, but what we learn from this teaching is, is specifically the great spirituality that's present that we can learn both from the way in which the body operates, but also going back to the addiction frame that we talked about before, that a person can become so utterly surrendered to a thing that the space between uh, thoughts, feelings, impulses, and actions starts to be reduced so that there's no space at all, that that is actually a holy thing. Okay. And that if I, for example, habituate myself, that's, which is one lesson you could take from this, if I habituate myself to good behavior, then I become, you know, I become a manifestation of right action without having to think about it. It becomes... Automatically, I don't have to think about doing the right thing. I just do the right thing. Now, it's for sure wonderful to do the right thing also for the right intention, but there's also tremendous and beautiful value to just doing the right thing because you want it to. Meaning, let's say if I'm in a rush and, you know, I, instead of rushing through the door, force myself, let's say I keep walking and then there's an old lady, so then I force myself to go back to open the door for the old lady, that's a nice thing. But if I can also train myself to automatically hold the door for the old lady, that's also a beautiful thing. So that's one of the things we take from that. But one of the things that emerges from the teachings of the Rebbe, as I said before, is the way in which he uses particularly this language itself, takev umiyad, in how we are meant to anticipate Gaula. How we are me- meant to anticipate 
redemption, which is a very different frame than many of us are kind of used to. You know, because life, change, transcendence, redemption, it seems like it takes a long time. Like we want it to happen right away, magically, but, you know, let's be honest, more often than not, it takes some time. So, because of that, we can oftentimes become a little jaded. A little cynical. Thank you for joining like the Consciously Family. Consciously you know, is brought to you by the Light Reveal. Social media publisher bringing messages of Jewish spirituality and recovery right to whoever is looking for them. So Consciously is made possible the by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tzipora Bas Ravara. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review and subscribe wherever else you get your podcasts. We love connecting with you. Please check out our website, thelightreveal.org. Feel free to email us at thelightreveal.tlrfamily.org. Our producer is Morty Schwartz. Our social media content team is Zoe Poznanski and Tahilo Nassanian. The other the assistant to the regional co-host is Shemaya Honekman, and, and our music is by Eitan Katz um, featuring Susha. Thank you for joining, and we wish you the, the most blessed day in only our association. association. Is that when we think about whether God cares, or whether we think about whether God is willing to enter our lives, we should think about it as if it's like instinct. It's take it from it's just like when my hand moves because it wants to. That part of the, the process of developing a hopeful awareness of God's presence in one's life is not to associate God as one who's withholding redemption. You know, obviously there's a withholding of redemption for function, but God is not withholding, and I don't mean in this sense like ultimate national redemption per se, specifically, but, but I mean even to be aware of the way in which redemption can be present in our lives personally. God is not withholding and like slowly dripping it out. God is eagerly waiting for it. It comes natural to him. And that if it's being withheld, it's kind of against his will, so to speak. He particularly has to focus on it. But it's take it from yad. It's, 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 it functions just as if it's instant. That's the second teaching. Okay. There's another third piece here that's very, very powerful. And this relates and correlates very much so to the spirituality that's present in the recovery movements. One of the most beautiful things about 12-step recovery is that the message that's passed on in the meetings of recovery is a very realist message. It's a message that comes from the person themselves that's experienced the recovery. It comes from the person who says, listen, I was hopeless and I'm not hopeless anymore. And I'm not sure if that's the case, but probably, maybe, hopefully, if you do what I did, you'll also get what I have. But how do I know? How do I know if that's going to come true for me? And the answer is, well, I'm here and I'm no better than you. The beautiful thing about this frame is that we are the proof. We are the living proof of God's power because we're here. And this actually relates to ourselves as the Jewish people and to humanity as a whole, but particularly the Jewish people. We are literally a living miracle. It's hard to understand why we've been through what we've been through in the history of our exile throughout all of our history, of all of our you know, existence, 
you know, since for the last, particularly for the last 2,000, 2,500 years. It's hard to understand, particularly what we've experienced over the last 100 years, particularly what many of our grandparents and great-grandparents experienced. It's, it's impossible to understand. It's almost can lead a person to a place where they falter in their faith. Does God really care? Is he really there? But then when you look around and you see that we exist, small, scattered, constantly under a barrage of attack, and yet we're still here, it almost exemplifies itself the reason for our faith. The very fact alone of our existence is the biggest proof that he cares, that he's here, that there's hope, that there's somewhere to go. And that type of hopefulness, the reason why that's related to this take of umiyata, because that kind of hopefulness does not require um, really any rationalization. It doesn't require any meditation. It doesn't require a feeling. It's just a re- it's just to come to an awareness, to connect with an awareness that I am here. Like if you're listening to this podcast, just to take a deep breath and say, I am here listening to a podcast about Jewish thought on a podcast, on a cell phone. A Jew in 2023 talking about God, talking about Torah. doesn't make any sense. How is this all here? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that remarkable? I'm here. I'm the proof. I don't need to think about that because it's me. It's take it from Yad. It's right away. And there's a deep spirituality in that. So what we learn from addiction and what we learn from the goof is sometimes the best thing is the reduction of the noise that exists between thoughts, feelings, impulse, and action to a place where we can just be who and what we are for free and for fun because we get to. Um, that's it. So, take it from me out right away. I'm ready. Ready. Ready for the whole thing. Have a great day.